Father in heaven. Lord, we want to thank you so much, Lord, for being with us throughout this uh, Discover Prophecy series. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with us now for our final presentation. We pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding and clarity, that you would give us uh, a continued openness of mind, Lord, that we would trust you, that you are guiding us, and that you would, will give us wisdom on this topic. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much that you are a good God and uh, so wonderful, Lord, to us. Bless our time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you look out over the world today, men and women are searching for certainty. They're looking for assurance. They're looking for some answer beyond the sky. They're looking for some supernatural solution to their problems. And as a result of that, there has been an explosion of interest in psychic phenomenon today. People are seeking for answers outside of themselves, and this search has led them down a variety of paths. Some of them are searching in the area of the occult. Books on the occult are now selling in multi-millions. It seems that there are more and more people today that are claiming to have the gift of prophecy. Some have even achieved national acclaim. In the 1960s, there was a lady by the name of Jean Dixon. Anyone remember hearing about her? Um, she became a prominent figure in Washington, D.C. circles. In fact, the book The Phenomenal Jean Dixon by Ruth Montgomery sold a total of 3 million copies since 1965. Interest in astrology columns and newspapers has also grown rapidly as well. 2000, over 2,000 newspapers throughout the United States have astrology columns. So why is there all this interest in astrology and the occults? Why all this interest in prophecy? Why is it that people call psychic hotlines? Well, friends, it's because people want answers, don't they? they their lives have become confused and they want answers. They're looking for some way to touch the divine. They're seeking for some, some way to experience the supernatural. That is why there are so-called channelers out there in the new age movement that are also attracting large numbers of people you see these channelers they're even on tv now where you can uh, you can watch these shows and there's a a panel of people that they all want to talk to their dead loved ones it is unreal friends what is happening in our world today yet jesus warns against counterfeit prophets in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Friends, deceptions will abound in these last days. Jesus also says this in Matthew 7, 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who, go, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are what? Ravenous wolves. Now, friends, no false prophet comes advertising with a business card saying, I'm a false prophet. Visit my website, imadeceiver.com. No false prophet does that. Or they wouldn't get any following. They wouldn't get any business. No one would be coming to them for advice. We see that some false prophets, they use crystal balls. Others use tarot cards. Some use Ouija boards even. And some use incense and pendants. And not one of them goes around saying, I'm a false prophet, come to me. They, they all claim to be true, don't they? So Jesus says, beware of false prophets. But wait a minute. If there are false prophets, could that be because the true gift of prophecy 
is going to be a part of God's remnant church in the last days? Would the devil counterfeit something that doesn't have any original? I don't think so, friends. Let me illustrate it with money. How many of you have ever seen a counterfeit $3 bill? Anybody? No, probably not, Christopher, because there is no genuine, there is no genuine $3 bill. So why would anyone want to counterfeit a $3 bill? No, no place would accept it, right? No business would accept it. Uh, instead, friends, you counterfeit the genuine. And so since the Bible warns that there will be false prophets in the last days, what does the Bible actually teach about the genuine gift of prophecy? That's what we want to know tonight. Does scripture teach that there will be a manifestation of the genuine gift of prophecy in earth's last days? Or does scripture teach, as many people claim, that the gift of prophecy somehow ceased at the end of Bible times? Or should the church today expect that spiritual gifts should be active in the church? And if so, how can we tell the genuine from Satan's counterfeits? That's what we want, we want to know tonight, friends. So let's go to the Bible for answers. How does that sound? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now, friends, if Jesus is giving gifts, how many of you want one of those gifts? Amen? I know my wife loves getting gifts, and so uh, this is a perfect thing right here. Jesus wants to give us all a gift. Amen? So what were these spiritual gifts that only Christ himself wanted to give? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, it continues to describe these gifts. It says, And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. And so here he lists five things, uh, five gifts that he would place in his church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, friends, do we need biblical teachers in our world today? Absolutely, we do. Do we need pastors and evangelists in our world today? Yes, we do. Now, it also says that some would be apostles. Now, that word apostles comes from the Greek word apostolos, which means one sent forth, um, which can also be translated a messenger or an ambassador or a missionary. Now, friends, does the church need ambassadors for Christ? Does it need missionaries that are willing to go far and wide to preach the gospel? Absolutely. So what about the gift of prophecy? Is this a gift that God would restore in his church in the last days? We will find that out tonight, friends. And what would all these gifts be for? Well, the Bible says that these gifts were for the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? God's people, the church. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Friends, did you know that God wants us to all be involved in ministry? It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the elder's job or the deacon's job. It is the work of the whole church. Amen? Amen. To do the work of ministry. These gifts were given for that very purpose. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. That is for the building up of the body of Christ. So friends, Jesus gave these gifts to the church to strengthen it so that it could accomplish its mission in these last days, to proclaim the gospel to the world. The church needs all the gifts that God wants to give it, amen, to challenge the enemy head on. But how long would these gifts remain in the church? Would they be taken away after a short period of time? No, friends. The very next verse in Ephesians 4 tells us 
that these gifts will be there till we all come to the unity of the faith. Now, have we all come to the unity of the faith? No, we have not. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So friends, spiritual gifts should be in the church to bring the church to spiritual maturity. Why? It continues. It says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Friends, is every wind of doctrine blowing in our world today? Absolutely it is. So the gift of prophecy and the other spiritual gifts will remain in the church until it comes to spiritual maturity, until the church comes to the place where it is ready for the coming of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.7 says, So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible says that the church waiting for the coming of Christ will come behind in no gift, friends. So if you and I are looking for truth, if we're looking for God's end time people, we need to find a church that is eagerly anticipating the second coming of Christ. It must be an Adventist church, a church that longs for the coming of Christ, a church that longs to see Jesus come in the clouds of heaven. It must also be a Bible-based church. Amen? Amen. It must be a grace-filled church, a Christ-centered church. We need to find a church that is also law-abiding, including honoring God by keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. And friends, we should expect and anticipate the gift of prophecy being restored in that Bible-believing group of people. Because if it doesn't have the gift of prophecy, it would, become, it would come behind in a gift. And the Bible says that the church waiting for the second coming of Jesus will be come behind in no gift. So we should anticipate that Jesus is going to have a last day church with the gift of prophecy. Jesus promised that the gift of prophecy would be revived in these last days. And friends, maybe that's the reason why we are, ex- why we are seeing an explosion of interest in the occult and in the new age movement in our world today. Satan is always trying to raise up counterfeits to the true genuine that God has. But with this, there are two great dangers. The first danger is to accept the counterfeits. Millions of people wanting a supernatural experience will accept a false supernatural experience. That's one danger. The second danger is to be so skeptical of all of these false manifestations that we reject the genuine. So it is possible to be so cautious that you become afraid of any church that claims to have the gift of prophecy. It's possible to turn your back on the genuine because you don't want to be deceived by the false. So the question begs to be asked, how can we tell the difference between the true and the false? Well, some time ago, a great deal of counterfeit money was being passed through the United States, and I'm sure there's probably still a great deal to this day. And the U.S. government became concerned about it. And so they brought men and women together from all over America to come to Washington, D.C. for a six-week course on how to to detect counterfeit money. They went to classes for eight to ten hours a day for for uh, for six weeks. Now, how many counterfeit bills do you think that they handled every day? None. Not a single one. Instead, they studied the genuine. They studied the $5 bill, the $10 bill, the 20s, and the 100s. They learned how to detect 
counterfeit money by knowing the genuine so well that they could immediately spot a counterfeit. Tonight, we want to know what the genuine gift of prophecy is all about. But first, why is it that God gave the gift of prophecy to his people in the first place? Why did God give it to his Old Testament church? Let's look at what the Bible says here in Isaiah 59, verse 2. The Bible tells us, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Friends, in the Garden of Eden, God communicated with Adam and Eve face to face. He went on walks with them in the garden in the cool of the day. They had that face-to-face conversation. But after Adam and Eve sinned, God could no longer communicate with them face-to-face. If he would have, they would have been immediately consumed by his glory. Sin is combustible material in the presence of a holy God. So because God longed to share his love with them, he chose an alternate method of communication. He chose to speak to them through the prophets. Acts chapter 3 verse 21, the Bible says, God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So how how has God chosen to speak? Through the prophets, right there. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God does how much? Nothing. Nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Numbers chapter 12 verse 6 says, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. So God used two primary methods to communicate with the biblical prophets. Number one, the first way is an angel brought them a a vision or a dream. Typically, visions were given to them while they were awake and dreams were given to them while they were asleep. The book of Daniel and Revelation, which we have been looking at extensively in our series, is largely a book full of visions and dreams that God gave to Daniel and John the Revelator. And the second way that God communicated with these biblical prophets was that he impressed their minds with the Holy Spirit. Look at what it says here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. The Bible says, For prophecy never came by the will of man. That is, they, they didn't just make this stuff up, friends. They didn't, John the Revelator didn't just dream up all these different beasts because he ate pizza one night. It's because God revealed these things to him. Amen? It says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Friend, God inspired the Bible writers to write what he impressed them to write. Yet not all of the prophets were Bible writers. For example, please open up your Bibles to the book of Agabus. It's not there, you say. Oh, but Agabus was a prophet. Did you know that? Did you know about Agabus? Acts chapter 11, verse 27 and 28 tells us about Agabus the prophet. And it says, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, was Agabus a true prophet? Yes, absolutely he was. Did the Holy, Holy Spirit impress his mind? Yes, he did. Did he make a prediction? Yes. yes, he did. And did his prediction come true? Yes, it did. Agabus 
Agabus's prophecies were for a time of crisis that the church was facing in Jerusalem, that it was going to face there. Now, what's the difference between Bible writers and these other true prophets? Well, because they were both inspired by God, right? Well, here's the difference, friends. The prophets whose writings are included in the Bible have a message that is eternal in time and universal in scope. So those are the prophets' writings that are included in the Bible. They have a message that is eternal in time and universal in scope, a message for everyone. The true prophets whose writings are not included in the Bible have a message from God for the church at a particular period of time in earth's history. Probably the most um, famous Bible prophet that does not have a book in the Bible would be John the Baptist. Now, was John the Baptist a prophet? Absolutely he was. He prepared the way for the first coming of Jesus. There were, also two, there were also women prophets in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see that Deborah was a prophetess. Huldah was also a prophetess. And in the New Testament, we had the seven daughters of Philip that were prophetesses as well. Now, what are the biblical tests of a true prophet? We want to know that, friends, because that's how we can tell whether it's a true prophet or a false prophet. And there are at least five tests that God give us in his word. The first is prophetic accuracy. The best modern psychics um, um, accurately are accurate approximately 16% of the time. Now, friends, you and I could probably be accurate 16% of the time if we're general enough, right? Like if I was to say tonight, I predict that you all are going to go home and you're going to brush your teeth and you're going to go to bed. I would probably be right for most of you, right? I would probably be right. But a true prophet of God would be right how much? 100% of the time. Jeremiah 28 verse 9 says, As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent. So what does God say here? He says, well, if the prophet's predictions are accurate, then you can know that they are a true prophet. Now, there are some cases in the Bible where prophecies were conditional. Can you guys think of any uh, any examples of that? Jonah. Jonah was a prophet, right? He was called to go and to preach to Nineveh and, and call them to repentance. And that he told them that if they didn't repent, the whole city would be destroyed. But we see that Nineveh repented. Praise God. They repented. But yet, was Jonah still a true prophet? Absolutely, he was a true prophet. The second test of a prophet is biblical faithfulness. True biblical prophets don't rise up and they, they don't rise up and tell you what's going to happen with the stock market. That's not the role of biblical prophets. They don't uh, rise up to tell you what all the Hollywood stars are doing and which ones are going to get married and which ones are going to get divorced. That's not what true prophets are about, friends. A true messenger of God will lead people back to which book? The Bible, the Holy Bible, friends. The biblical faithfulness test is found in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. Let's look at, it, look at it together here. It says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams." 
You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and do what? Keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. So this text is basically saying if the so-called prophet is not leading a person back to the word of God to be faithful to the scriptures, then they are blatantly a false prophet. And run from false prophets, friends. You do not want to be deceived by a false prophet. The third test is that a true prophet will exalt Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-2 to says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but do what? Test the spirits. How do you do that? By every word, right? You compare it to scripture. You compare it to scripture. Beloved, do not, te- do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now notice it says that there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. God makes it plain because he does not want us to be gullible and he does not want us to be naive and he doesn't want us to be deceived, friends. But he says to test the spirits, to know whether they are of God or not. False prophets will acknowledge that Jesus Christ existed, but they will deny salvation through his blood. They will say that Christ is just another man or that he was maybe one of the prophets or, or, or whatever, but they do not believe that he is the eternal son of God. This clearly identifies them as false prophets. And a true prophet we have seen always leads us back to the word of God, back to Jesus as our only savior. The fourth test of a biblical prophet to know if they're true is commandment keeping. The prophets of the Bible, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they were raised up at times when God's people were breaking his commandments. And they called God's people back to faithfulness, back to the obedience to God, back to the keeping of God's commandments. Isaiah 8.20 says this, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is how much light? No light in them. Friends, if that so-called prophet is not leading you back to the commandments of God, if they do not lead you back to obedience to God, they are a false prophet. Acts chapter 2 verse 17 tells us that there will be prophets who prophesy in the last days. And in fact, in Acts 2.17, it's actually quoting from the book of Joel, the Old Testament book of Joel chapter 2 verse 28. And it says this, And it shall come to pass when... In the last days. Friends, do you believe that we're living in the last days? Do you believe that Jesus is coming soon? Absolutely. So this is especially applicable to us, right? And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall do what? They will prophesy and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Friends, God is at work even now, and he is revealing himself to people. Amen? I've heard of many Muslims um, that have been having dreams of Jesus. Do you, feel, do you believe that that is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy? Amen. I believe it, friends. I believe God's spirit is moving and there are people that are being reached 
by this. In, in places, in countries where it is difficult for Christians to do any kind of evangelism, God is at work in ways that we can't even imagine. Friends, God will indeed give visions and dreams to his people in these last days. There's no doubt about that. Revelation also tells us that the gift of prophecy will be present in God's end time church. We saw earlier tonight that in Revelation chapter 12, it describes God's church uh, and how it hid in the wilderness for 1260 years and that it would once again thrive at the end of time. Revelation 12:17 describes God's remnant church in this way. It says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who do what? They keep the commandments of God, and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice the two characteristics of God's last day people. They keep the commandments of God, and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And later in Revelation 19.10, John tells us very clearly what the testimony of Jesus is. Revelation 19.10 says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So God's last day Bible-believing, commandment-keeping people should have the gift of prophecy. So the fifth test of a true prophet is spiritual fruitage. The genuine gift of prophecy is given to God's church to bear spiritual fruit in the lives of its believers and in the life of the church. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns us to beware of false prophets. And then he says in verse 20, Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. In other words, you can tell a true prophet from a false prophet based on their spiritual fruitage. A true prophet will bear fruit to the glory of God. And a false prophet will not bear fruit to the glory of God. So if we believe that we have found God's end time church, it must have the gift of prophecy. According to Revelation 12, 17, as well as Revelation 19, 10. If it does not, if God's end time church doesn't have it, then it is not God's end time true church. Because the Bible predicts that God's true church will have this gift. Now here's the question. Has God blessed the Seventh-day Adventist Church with the gift of prophecy? If he has not, then we need to keep looking for God's end-time people. If God has not restored the gift of prophecy in his last day church, then he would not be faithful to his own word because God promised to restore the gift of prophecy. So he promised to place it in the church awaiting the coming of Christ. He said the church would become, come behind in no gift. And faithful to his word, God himself placed the gift of prophecy in his last day, Sabbath-keeping Adventist church. Let me share with you the story how God chose to keep in touch with his end-time church. During the great religious awakening in the early 19th century, there was tremendous interest in Bible study and prayer. There was a special interest in the prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation. And there were faithful Bible students from every denomination that were coming together. People like William Miller, who had a Baptist background, and Joseph Bates. And they studied these prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And eventually they came to the conclusion that Jesus would come in their day. And it became a huge movement known as the Millerite movement, the Great Advent movement. And word spread to every missionary outpost um, in the world, English missionary outpost. 
And as they continued to study, they believed that Jesus would come in the year 1844. And for a long time, no one set a specific date for the coming of Christ, but finally they set the date of October 22, 1844. That was the day that the Day of Atonement took place on that year. However, we know that October 22 passed and Jesus did not return. It was a most bitter disappointment for these Advent believers. It provoked much ridicule and scoffing and misrepresentation. People were making fun of them. It was absolutely an awful experience. But later, after much prayer and further Bible study, the group discovered that the date was correct, but that the event was wrong. They had thought that the, sec- that the sanctuary mentioned in Daniel 8.14 was the earth, but they were mistaken in this. Instead of the earth being cleansed by fire, which is what they were preaching, the sanctuary in heaven was to be cleansed, and the final judgment was to begin. And we saw that in our fourth presentation on heaven's final judgment. Excitedly, the believers continued to study God's word, and they began to find more truths that had been forgotten for centuries. Truths like the Bible Sabbath and what happens when you die. And at this crucial moment, God chose to restore the gift of prophecy to his people. He chose a frail 17-year-old girl by the name of Ellen Harmon. Ellen Harmon was given her first vision in December 1844, just two months after this great disappointment that took place. She was shown the Advent people traveling on a elevated road to heaven with a brilliant light from Jesus illuminating their pathway. This was an an encouraging message to the small group of scattered believers uh, that believed in the the second advent of Christ. These people would uh, later become known as Seventh-day Adventists. Young Ellen soon married James White, another youthful Bible student, and for more than 70 years she wrote She taught and she spoke all around the world and she counseled for God. Although the scope of her ministry and her expertise is astounding, her greatest work, as she put it, was to lead men and women to the greater light. And friends, what is the greater light? It is God's word, God's holy word. She wrote this. She says, little heed is given to the Bible and the Lord has given a lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light. That's from Cole Porter Ministry, page 125. She stated time and time again that the Holy Scriptures were to be the authority for all doctrine. And to some people who were criticizing the Word of God in her day, she wrote this. She said, cling to your Bible as it reads. And do what? Stop your criticism in regards to its validity and obey the Word, and not one of you will be lost. Friends, does that sound like good counsel? That sounds like good counsel to me. On November 26, 1827, Ellen White was born along with her twin sister, Elizabeth. And they were born in the tiny village, the tiny town of Gorham, Maine, to Eunice and Robert Harmon. Ellen was the youngest of eight children. And at the age of nine, she was in an accident that changed her life forever. While returning home from school, Ellen was seriously injured by a stone that was thrown by one of her classmates. And for three weeks, she was unconscious, and it appeared that she would not live long. Though she survived, she was unable to continue her schooling past the third grade. 
Her physical suffering led her to consider her spiritual life, and she came to put her faith and trust in Jesus. Ellen became an avid, an avid student, student of the Bible. She attended camp meetings. She attended revival meetings and cottage meetings of her day. And after attending a Methodist camp meeting in Buxton, Maine, Ellen White was baptized June 26, 1842, and she became a member of the Methodist Church. Later, Ellen and her family attended some meetings in Portland, Maine, and there was a speaker there by the name of William Miller. We talked a little bit about him last night. He was a former army captain who had been diligently studying the prophecies of the Bible. And because he advocated the soon coming of Christ, his followers were labeled Adventists or Millerites. And the Harmon family was convinced of the truthfulness of Miller's message. However, after the great disappointment of October 22, 1844, Ellen White was completely devastated. She wept and she prayed and she studied God's word for an answer, as did many of the Advent believers. Then it was that God called her to be a prophetess. Physically, she didn't appear what you would expect from a prophetess. She was a 17-year-old girl. She was young. She was fighting tuberculosis and she had a heart condition. Yet in December of 1844, God chose to speak to Ellen White in a vision. In her own words, she tells of her reaction. She says, After I had the vision and God gave me light, he bade me deliver it. But I shrank from it. I was young and I thought that they would not receive it from me. Although feeling inadequate and physically incapable of the responsibilities of this calling, in faith she accepted the mission that God had for her. And Ellen and her husband, James White, worked together in sharing the light that God gave. Their experiences and their devotions are shared in many of her writings. And throughout her life, Ellen White was a committed Christian. She was a tireless servant of God, and she was a devoted mother. She was loved by her husband, by her family, and by thousands of people all around the world. On August 6, 1881, Ellen's husband, James White, died in Battle Creek, Michigan. And standing by the graveside of her husband was Ellen, and she she pledged that day to press on in the work that they had both sacrificed relentlessly for, and she continued her ministry for another 35 years. And some of Ellen White's most beautiful and inspiring writings appeared after this date. And she continued to work for God for another 34 years, as I mentioned. Her prophetic ministry took her to several countries, took her to Europe, as well as Australia, and God used her. He instructed her and gave her visions and dreams. The life of The life and ministry of Ellen White closed on July 16, 1915. She died at the age of 87. She was buried at the site of her husband in the Oak Hill Cemetery in Battle Creek, Michigan. And a few weeks after her death, a newspaper shared this statement about her. They said, She showed no spiritual pride, and she sought no filthy lucre, that is, filthy riches. She lived the life, and she did the work of a worthy prophetess the most admirable of the American succession. That was from the New York Independent. And friends, this was not written by a Seventh-day Adventist. This is not a Seventh-day Adventist uh, publication. Yes, her voice is stilled, but her pen is at rest, but the words and the counsel that God gave to her still speak to God's people today. 
God gave Ellen White more than 2,000 prophetic dreams and visions. She wrote over 50 books, and she lectured, on thousands, lectured to thousands of people on three different continents. And the last years of Ellen White's life were spent in California. When historian George Wharton James was writing the history of California in his book, California, the Romantic and the Beautiful, he commented on this humble woman, Ellen White. He said this. He was not a Seventh-day Adventist, by the way. He said, this remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated, has written and published more books in more languages which circulate to the greater extent than any other woman in history. Friends, is that amazing? She had a third grade education. And she was sick for much of her life, in her early years especially. There were many people... There are many people who have questions about the gift of prophecy, and rightfully so. If you have questions, that is okay. Questions like, does the prophetic gift replace the Bible? And do Seventh-day Adventists accept the writings of Ellen White on par with the Bible? The answer to both of these questions is no. The gift of prophecy does not take the place of the Bible, friends, but it exalts the Bible. Amen? Her writings exalt Jesus and point people back to the Bible. Seventh-day Adventists believe in the Bible and in the Bible only as the source of every Bible doctrine. Every teaching of the Adventist church comes directly from the teachings of the Bible. And friends, we believe in the entire Bible. Amen? We believe in the Bible. It's inspired from Genesis all the way to Revelation. You know, there are some people that say, well, the whole Old Testament just doesn't apply to us anymore. And friends, that is not the case. We believe in the entire Word of God, including the portion that says that God will reveal prophetic gifts to his end-time church. Friends, if we are a Bible-believing people, we have to accept the entire Bible, including the part that says that God will restore the gift of prophecy. Even when that prophetic message might rebuke us for some cherished sin. The only thing an honest-hearted person can do before dismissing someone who has the, the gift of prophecy is to examine that individual's writings for themselves and check it out. If a person meets the biblical tests of a prophet, then we should accept them as a genuine voice from God. But if they do not, then we should rule them out and we shouldn't pay any attention to them. So let's apply these prophetic tests to Ellen White. How does Ellen White line up to the five biblical tests that we've looked at? Well, let's look at them one by one. What about prophetic accuracy? What areas did Ellen White write in? And are those areas accurate? Are those statements accurate? One of the subjects that she wrote on quite often was the subject of health. Back in the 1800s when she lived and wrote, people had no idea that sugar and fats contributed to coronary heart disease. They, their, their level of health knowledge was, was terrible back then, friends. And Ellen White wrote about a diet of whole grains, fruits, nuts, and vegetables. In modern times, scientific researchers have now concluded that a diet rich in fruits, nuts, and grains, and vegetables helps prevent cancer. Olive, uh, or sorry, Clive McKay of Cornell University said that this woman, Ellen White, is 100 years ahead of her time in the area of diet. Back in the 1800s, Ellen White wrote this in her book, Ministry of Healing. She wrote, tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. Now friends, to help you understand the context of this, she was writing this 
in the, the mid to late 1800s. And doctors at this time were actually recommending cigars to their patients. That's the, the different world that they were living in back then, friends. Most people back then believed that inhaling tobacco smoke would actually cleanse your lungs, but it was actually the complete opposite. But Ellen White wrote that tobacco was a malignant poison long before scientific evidence ever said. So long before the Surgeon General ever said that this, by you know, doing this product, it can cause uh, cancer and a host of other diseases. And no researcher today would argue with uh, Ellen White on that point. Ellen White also wrote that when a baby is in the womb of its mother, the attitude of the mother had an influence on the child's physical as well as mental health. And that was completely unknown in her day. Ellen White also wrote about the rise of the occult. She wrote about spiritualism, and she predicted that there would be an explosion of interest in communication with the dead. And friends, do we see that happening in our world today? Absolutely, we do. She, but she made this prediction back at a time when Americans had very little interest in things like this. But the predictions have come true, friends. They have been accurate. So what about biblical faithfulness? What did Ellen White herself say? Well, friends, if you want to evaluate someone's writings, you have to go to their writings and look at them for yourself. You don't go to some web page by their critics who have prejudged them without examining all of the evidence, people who have taken their writings out of context. Friends, I certainly would not want someone to criticize me based off of what someone else said about me. If you, so if you asked Ellen White, what did she believe about the Bible, what would she say? Well, she would say this. She said, in our time, there is a wide departure from their... In our time, there is a wide departure from their doctrines and precepts. And there is a need of a return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only, as the rule of faith and duty. Friends, can you agree with that statement tonight? That we need to return back to the Bible. The true gift of prophecy always leads God's people back to the study of the Bible. Now let me be clear, friends. Seventh-day Adventists do not believe that Ellen White's writings in any way take the place of the Bible. They do not believe that her writings are another Bible, but they are encouraged to test the spirits, the Bible says, to test Ellen White and see if she meets the tests of a true prophet. Everyone is encouraged to do that, friends. And thirdly, the true gift of prophecy exalts Jesus Christ. What about Ellen White? Did she exalt Jesus Christ in her life and in her ministry? Let's see what she says herself about Jesus in the book Gospel Workers. This was one of the books that she wrote to Christian workers. She said this, she said, Lift up Jesus, you who teach, you that teach the people, lift him up in sermon and song and prayer. Let all your powers be directed to pointing souls, confused, bewildered, and lost. To who? To the Lamb of God. Friends, Ellen White's writings are filled with an emphasis on Jesus. She points out again and again that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. She wrote the book Desire of Ages on the life of Christ, one of my favorite books. She wrote Christ Object Lessons on the parables of Christ. She wrote the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings on the teachings of, of Christ on the Mount. And she wrote Steps to Christ on how to get to know Jesus for yourself. Somebody said that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. 
Rather than reading the critics, friends, get the book Desire of Ages. We'll give you a copy here tonight. Or get the book Steps to Christ and read it prayerfully and see if it is in harmony with the Bible. See if it brings you closer to Jesus. Several years ago, the Barna Group, a Christian research group, conducted a survey. And it was a survey that was among pastors of a variety of different denominations. And they wanted to find out what books and what authors had influenced them the most. And here's what they found. It says, The under 40 pastors championed several authors who were not ranked highly by older church leaders. Those authors included business consultant James Collins, seminary professor Tom Renner, and 19th century Seventh-day Adventist icon Ellen White, and pastor John Ortberg. Now friends, I thought that this was very interesting that uh, Ellen White was being heavily read by younger pastors under the age of 40. Very interesting. This here is a picture of the Library of Congress. And it has more books than any other library in our country. And one day, a popular pro uh, Protestant minister went to the Library of Congress. And he asked the library that was working there at the time. He said, what is your most outstanding book on the life of Christ in all of the Library of Congress? And here's what the librarian at the Library of Congress said. He said, My preference or choice would be guided by what I wish to get from the book or books to be read. But let me put it this way. I would put The Desire of Ages by Ellen G. White first for spiritual discernment and practical application. Friends, Ellen White fulfills the biblical test. Her writings exalt Jesus as Lord and Savior. And this leads us to the fourth test of a prophet. At a time of rebellion, the biblical prophets would always lead God's people back to commandment keeping. The prophets did not manufacture something that was not in the Bible. They did not contradict the prophets who had gone before them. And Ellen White leads people back to the Bible, back to commandment keeping. She exalts the law of God and she points out the significance of the seventh day Sabbath. She urges people to study the word of God. And friends, I and many others have found that Ellen White meets the biblical test of a true prophet. Her writings meet the test of biblical faithfulness. They exalt Jesus and they lead people back to be a commandment-keeping people. So what about the fifth test, the spiritual fruitage test? What is the spiritual fruitage of her ministry? Well, Ellen White, Ellen White wrote a book called Education, and in it she said that Seventh-day Adventists should establish schools all around the world. And so, so that uh, Adventist young people could be educated and they could help bring the gospel to the world. And what is the result of this council? Well, friends, our church now has the largest Protestant educational system in the entire world, second to none. According to the church's education department website, over 1.8 million students attend over 7,792 schools, colleges, and universities all around the world. What is the spiritual fruitage? Well, universities like Loma Linda University, one of the most prestigious medical centers in the world, got started. And Ellen White was one of the pioneers that helped get Loma Linda started. She actually helped pick out the location for that site. Florida Hospital is one of the most extensive and renowned hospital systems in the United States. And it is known for its blend of scientific expertise as well as Christian compassion. 
So as a result of Ellen White's counsel given by God, we now have hospitals all around the world that are ministering the gift of healing. Amen? Amen. Ellen White's writings do not deal with bizarre events and wild-eyed fanaticism. They have changed the world for the better. There are visions and dreams that were given to guide God's people so that the church can move forward around the world. Seventh-day Adventists also have a modern missionary movement that spans the globe. J.N. Andrews was one of the first official, he was the first official Seventh-day Adventist missionary. He was sent from the United States to the country of Switzerland because early Adventist leaders believed that we needed to reach the world for Christ. And he was encouraged to go by Ellen White. And Andrews left in the late 1800s. And Seventh-day Adventists now have established work in 215 out of the 227 countries recognized by the United Nations. Seventh-day Adventists have more work in more countries than any other Protestant denomination in the globe, friends. God has blessed incredibly. Friends, when people are honest-hearted, God leads them. The, people, the Bible says that in the last days, God will have an end-time people. And he promises to give his people a special gift from Jesus. And that gift is the spirit of prophecy. Not to take the place of the Bible? Never, friends. Not to take the place of Jesus Christ? Absolutely no way. But as a special gift given by God to guide his people and to direct them to know Jesus better and to understand the word of God better. Friends, I'm thankful that Jesus still leads his church. How about you? I'm thankful that God has given us his holy word. And friends, may God help us to be faithful in following the light that it contains. Amen? Let's pray as we close here tonight. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so thankful that you chose to keep in touch with humanity. And Lord, we've seen, Lord, throughout your word that, that you had prophets, Lord, in Bible times, and that you uh, still said that there would be prophets and, uh, and such that come in the last days, Father. And we've seen tonight that um, you still have a gift, Lord, and that is the gift of prophecy that you have given to your last day remnant people. And Lord, we, we, some of us here tonight may have been hearing about this for the first time, Lord, and I pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to go out and to search this out for ourselves. Lord, help us to, to be able to truly test and, and follow these biblical tests and to really go through it, Lord. And if there's anything out of harmony, Lord, that we, could, that we would know that, Lord, and that you would give us wisdom and that you would guide us, Lord. We believe that you still guide your people. And we are so grateful for that, Lord. Be with each one of us, Lord. As we close off these meetings of Discover Prophecy, Lord, we pray that you would continue to lead us step by step. Lord, we pray that we would not go back to the old way that we did things, Lord, or the old beliefs that we used to have, but Lord, that we would continue to move forward in faith with you, that we would study your word like we've never studied it before, and that you would help us, Lord, to be ready when you come back, Lord. We've seen the signs are all around us, Lord, that your return is near. Father, help us to wake up. Help us to be alert to, to what is happening in this world, and help us, Lord, to cling to you and to your word, Lord, that we might not be deceived in these last days. Lord, bless each one of us. Keep us in your care, Lord. And may we be found ready and waiting when you come, Lord, is our prayer. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.